You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Midtown. Welcome to our sermon series, The Holy Spirit, Presence With Us. Join us as we explore the person and work of the Holy Spirit and how His presence in our lives empowers us to live a life of faith and witness. Discover how the Holy Spirit can transform us and guide us into a deeper relationship with Him. Peace be with you. Today's scripture reading is found in John chapter 16, verses 5 through 15. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. But now I am going away to him who sent me, and not one of you asks me, where are you going? Yet because I have spoken these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I am telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away, because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father, and you will no longer see me. And about judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Everything the Father has is mine. This is why I told you that he takes from what is mine and will declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. My name is Andy. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I direct our outreach ministries here at Sojourn. So it's a joy to be here this morning, especially on this Mother's Day. Um, I'm excited to jump into this text together out of John chapter 16 as we continue this series in the Holy Spirit. Um, Before I do, I want to speak a little bit about the gospel according to Frozen and... uh, We'll, we'll, we'll kind of exegete uh, that marvelous, you know, saga uh, for a quick second. Um, uh, if you haven't seen any of these movies, I'm sorry you live under a rock. You should get out from under it. It's taken over all of our kids' lives. Uh, but, uh, and, you know, the first, it, it's mainly about these two sisters, Elsa, Anna, right? Um, Elsa has these powers of, with, you know, to perform wonderful winter miracles. And, uh, and then Anna is her normal sister with really her head on straight. So, uh, so Frozen 1, Elsa is really afraid of um, what her power will do. Um, and so she, you know, kind of runs off by herself and, you know, let it go. She builds this big old ice castle and she kind of stays away from everybody, right? Um, that's kind of the whole plot on that one. There's more there, but that's essentially it. The second one uh, is, uh, you know, there's now this discovery for Elsa. She's trying to figure out, you know, who she is and what her life should be about. Um, And Anna kind of becomes the person who begins to freak out a little bit. And she kind of becomes a helicopter sister, kind of overreacts, begins to just be all over the place, um, and uh, wants to make sure her sister is not going to go off by herself again or get hurt or whatever. So what you see are two sisters responding in fear in two different ways, right? Sister Elsa uh, chooses when she's afraid to uh, go into isolation. Isolation. So, it's going to be a good one. Uh, 
the second sister goes into like kind of like indulgence. You know, she's sort of like over-functioning in the area of working really hard, trying to take care of her sister. Okay? Um, so isolation and indulgence are actually, I think, really common ways in which we respond to fear as well. Uh, our fear can be of guilt. We're, we're, we're afraid of a punishment or afraid that we did something deserving of, you know, uh, we're guilty. We're feeling really guilty. Uh, we get afraid of abandonment. We get afraid because we're confused or we doubt something. There's many different reasons why we fear, but we respond in these two different ways, isolation or indulgence, to find comfort. That's what we're looking for, to alleviate our fears. When I think of indulgence, I'm thinking of like binging anything, food, drink, Netflix. When I'm thinking of indulgence, I'm thinking of working, so over-functioning in, in work, trying to just uh, uh, immerse ourselves in it so we can numb it. And then I think numbing is one of the primary ways in which we indulge. We just try to forget the fear as much as we can, doing something we enjoy or giving us security or whatever it may be. For isolation, we withdraw from community, from friendships. We deny that there maybe is like a problem in front of us and pretend like everything is hunky-dory. We're just isolating ourselves from the fear. Or perhaps we just hide altogether not let anybody in whatsoever. Indulging, isolating. These strategies don't work super well. In fact, they often make things significantly worse. What's beautiful though about John chapter 16 is Jesus gives us a better way. And the better way is this. We can find comfort from the counselor, the Holy Spirit of God. My main idea for us this morning is the Spirit brings us comfort. Spirit brings us comfort. We're going to see that in three ways through John chapter 16. First, through the Spirit's arrival, it brings us comfort. Through the Spirit's conviction brings us comfort. And through the Spirit's revelation, we all find comfort. So let's pray, and then we're going to dive into John chapter 16 and really explore what this comfort truly means for us. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for bringing all of us here. It's not an accident that you drew all of us this morning to gather together corporately to sing songs to you, to gather in community with fellow believers, and to hear the Word of God revealed to us. Lord, the Word of God is called sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing the heart. God, I pray that the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, and that the words today would be coming from you, Holy Spirit. And that saints in this room would be sanctified and people would come to faith in you, Jesus, as a result of the good news of the gospel that is seen in this text as well. And pray the things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, John chapter 16. Let's uh, turn to your Bibles and let's, let's pour through this. Um, we start in verse 5 in John chapter 16. And Jesus, through all of the upper room discourse, has been talking about this departure that he's going to be uh, going to. Um, and in verse 5, he speaks specifically to it. Now, I'm going away to him, the Father, who sent me. And not one of you asks me, where are you going? Yet because I've spoken these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. This sorrow, if we think about the context of what the disciples are going through, makes a ton of sense. Judas, here's what's going on. Judas has like weirdly slipped away. The plots about Jesus's death and like the kind of conspiracy are like becoming more and more and more explicit. 
Jesus is saying, I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave. I'm going to depart. I'm going to suffer. Things are going to get bad. Persecution's going to hit you. That's what he was talking about in chapter 15 of John. And these disciples are now feeling a little panicky, which makes complete sense. They're going to be the Lakers without LeBron James. They're going to be a, 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 an army without their leader. They're, this is horrible news if Jesus is really going to leave right now. And panic mode has completely set in. And for you and me, panic mode is like so prevalent often in our life. This fear of us being alone. And it shifts to panic mode. When we think about our parenting, we're alone. When we think about a work situation, we find ourselves alone. When we think about engaging with neighbors and trying to just be a life-giving presence, we feel alone. Maybe just even in our, our, our grief and our struggles, we feel alone. I know for many mothers in this room, the day-to-day -day grind of being with the kids make you feel alone. And panic mode sets in. We're the disciples here. And it hits us hard because we do often find ourselves feeling very, very, very alone. Well, then Jesus keeps going here in verse 7, and he says this crazy statement, it's actually better for you that I leave. Okay, I, I don't know about you guys, but that makes no sense to me when I read that text. So what you're saying, Jesus, is you ditching us is better, which he wasn't ditching, but you know what I'm saying? Like Jesus' presence with us in person, how could it be better that he leaves? And he's saying, because the Spirit's going to come. The Spirit's coming. The counselor will be here. And it's going to be better for you. So once again, that find, I find that statement confusing. How can that be better? Somehow, it's better to have the Spirit with us than Jesus with us. And this is how this can be so. As long as Jesus was with them in person, Jesus' work was localized. It was limited. By his physical body, he could not be, this is wild, the creator of the universe limited himself in a physical body to be present with us, to, to understand us, to, 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 for us to understand him in that deeper way, right? But he wasn't able to communicate with all of his followers at the exact same time. He wasn't able to be present with his followers at the exact same time. We see panic mode happening all throughout the gospels because people need Jesus in order for life to be okay. You think of the disciples. You think of them like having the whole village show up at the doorstep and they're scrambling. Like, where is Jesus? What is he doing right now? And he, Jesus shows back up and he says, where have you been? Everybody's been looking for you. Or they find themselves in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and the storms are raging all over the place. And they're like, where is Jesus? And they see some ghosts walking on the water. They don't know what's happening, but here they are saying, things would be fine if Jesus was here. I think of Jairus in Mark chapter five of running to Jesus and saying, things are gonna be okay because Jesus is here. But then Jesus is late and his daughter dies. I think of Mary and Martha. And then looking at Jesus and saying, if you would have been here, our brother would not have died. But whenever Jesus showed up, it got better, right? But you see people needing him to be present all the time. But this is the crazy, powerful, unbelievable reality of the Holy Spirit of God. Is that the idea of Jesus through his spirit being present all the time was a complete game changer for these disciples. These 
cowards became full of courage later on. These just disgruntled, confused, doubtful became full of the Spirit, being able to stand up against rulers of the entire world with confidence of saying, no, he really did rise from the dead. And it happened continuously, simultaneously, and constantly. Constantly it was happening. Jesus, through his Spirit, would be able to be alongside and inside the disciples constantly. He'd be able to be encouraging and exhorting the disciples simultaneously. He'd be able to comfort and convict the disciples constantly. This is the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't you understand? Guys, we would act differently if we believed that. We would act differently in our parenting if we believed the Holy Spirit was with us constantly, continuously, and simultaneously. We would act differently as we're interacting with our coworkers. Believing that the Holy Spirit is in you, dwelling in you, constantly, continuously, and simultaneously. You would deal with the troubles of this world in a different way if we actually believed that the Holy Spirit of God is with you constantly, continuously, and simultaneously. Even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, The Holy Spirit of God is with you constantly, continuously, and simultaneously. That's wild. It is better, isn't it? That's crazy. That gives us some comfort. So much comfort. So this week, what would it look like for you to go and act like that was real in your life? You Sojourn, my brothers and sisters, are never alone. Ever. What a comfort. So Jesus is is saying the Spirit's arrival gives us comfort. Amen, it does. Well, he keeps going. The Spirit's conviction brings comfort too, which this is wild to think about. So the Spirit, Jesus says, in verse 8, comes to convict the world in three ways, sin, in righteousness, and in judgment. And this word convict has a sense of shaming the world, convincing the world of its guilt. The spirit is going into attack mode right now, like a prosecutor in a courtroom, proving beyond a shadow of a doubt that the world and anyone who's not in Christ is sinful, unrighteous, and deserving of judgment. That's what's happening. That's, the, that, that, that's like the image we should be thinking about is the spirit showing up as a lawyer proving the case beyond a shadow of a doubt. That's what the spirit's doing. So in verse nine, he, the spirit comes and convicts the world for what? In sin, for not believing in Jesus. Okay, when we think of sin, we think of disobedience, right? Think of doing something wrong. Think of disobeying God's commands. Think of uh, rebelling against a different way. Absolutely, all of that is completely true. Jesus boils it all down, though, and says, here's sin. Not believing in me. Not believing in me. I think this is how this works. Jesus says in John 14, again, part of the same upper room discourse, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The way to salvation, the way to forgiveness, the way to experience grace is through Jesus. The triune Godhead and eternity past 
set up redemptive plan to work like that. Okay? That's his will. The way in which we're redeemed is through Jesus. But the sin comes in this way. Just like our first parents in Genesis 3 saying, no, 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 I want to come up with my own way to get to God. I want to come up with my own way to live the good life. I want to come up with my own pathway for spiritual enlightenment or whatever it may be to eternal life, whatever that is. I want to choose my own way. So here is a direct rebellion against the authority and will of what God has set up. And we boil it down to this. You want to be saved? You go through Jesus. And any other pathway is sin deserving of death. John chapter 8, unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. So he convicts the world of sin. Where are you at this morning? What are you pursuing? If it's not Jesus, then the Holy Spirit is saying you're finding yourself in sin. Deep, eternal consequences type sin. So he convicts the world of sin, and then in verse 10, Jesus talks about convicting the world of righteousness. And then he says, because you will no longer see me, I will be with the Father. I'm going to the Father. What he's getting at at this is, uh, Jesus is at this time having all of the world around him saying, you are guilty and deserving of punishment. The Holy Spirit shows up on the scene and is saying, you are guilty world and worthy of punishment. Because what Jesus has done and will eventually do, and the Holy Spirit enlightens everybody to understand this, is Jesus' resurrection from the dead and ascension into glory is proof that he was accepted by the Father. Therefore, eternally righteous. So it was the vindication of Jesus' righteousness, right? And righteousness, a good definition, is the absolute standard of God's character, which all thought and all action must be compared. A way to think about it, uh, in my mind, is uh, when I think about the October 20th, 1968 Olympics, which took place in Mexico, okay? Mexico City, specifically. Uh, And it was about the high jump at this time. That was the big deal. Um, And there was a lanky, weird-looking dude from the US of A uh, named Dick Fosbury, who ended up winning this, like out of nowhere, like he was a nobody, winning this high jump, okay? High jump back in the 60s uh, was done with the classic form of the scissor kick, okay? I just had knee surgery. I'm not going to demonstrate that, but uh, what happens, you you know, you jump, you're facing forward, you jump up, and you kind of lean to the side, and you, you know, kind of scissor kick your legs over, and then you get over the top or whatever. Okay, I'm a long distance runner. I can't jump, save my life. So I don't know how this feels to do this, but that's what it looks like. So um, Dick Fosbury though shows up on the scene and like a total weirdo jumps backwards over the high jump. Uh, We got a picture of him doing it right here. Doesn't look weird to us because this is the new standard. He won the Olympics jumping backwards. And it became the way in which all Olympians tried to go over the high jump after this happened. And they call it the Fosbury flop. No one, by the way, talks about the, uh, you know, what what was the actual uh, specific number or measurement or height in which Dick jumped over that bar. What everyone looks at was the person 
who jumped over the bar. It was not the precept, it was the person that set the standard for how to high jump. Sojourn, what happened in the Old Testament covenant was to know what righteousness looked like is you had to attain a certain precepts. But now what has occurred is in order to understand the standard of righteousness, we look to a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus sets that standard for us. We look at his life, we look at his, his teaching, and he sets the standard. It's a person now. And what the Holy Spirit does is puts Jesus up on display and says, y'all can't even get close. Take the Sermon on the Mount, for instance. We in society think that we're going to come up with different ways to live the good life, to maybe make community flourishing a reality. And many of us in this room would even say, and in and, and the world for sure, would say a conservative agenda leads to flourishing or a progressive agenda leads to flourishing. The reality of it is, none of it comes close to true righteousness. The Sermon on the Mount articulates something that is impossible to obtain, but is beauty reincarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus sets the standard for righteousness, and the world looks at it and realizes through the Holy Spirit, we can't even come close. Jesus sets the standard. Convicts the world of righteousness, and then finally the Spirit, verse 11, convicts the world of judgment. Convicts the world of judgment. Colossians 2.15 articulates the implications of this judgment for the spiritual realms. And it's this, King Jesus resurrected from the dead, sitting on the throne. Colossians 2.15, his death and resurrection disarmed the ruler and authorities, putting them to shame and triumphing over them. Here's the implications for a resurrected King Jesus upon Satan and his devils. The qualifications for condemning Satan to death is being the one who conquered Satan and death. And that's Jesus. He is victorious over Satan and his demons. We can find comfort in this. His end is nigh. He does not have the final say. Jesus has the final say. And while he may annoy and aggravate and, and cause ailments in our, in, in our lives and in our communities, the victory that Jesus has is certain. The judgment is clear. Those are the implications for Satan and his devils is that your judgment is certain. The implications for us as humans is our judgment is deserving. Our judgment is deserving. We deserve condemnation. And what the Spirit of God does and working in the world is revealing how that condemnation is so deserved. And it happens all the time. Of just, there just this understanding of a, of a a level of morality and a deserving of judgment that is present. I experienced it really intensely when I was in fourth grade in my friend Kevin Bannis' birthday party. Okay, so how this worked. Uh, okay, context, Iowa, winter. Cold, snow. Kids bored. They decide, let's go have some fun outside. And uh, what you do outside with snow is you make snowballs and you huck them at each other. Um, and what happens then after a while is throwing snowballs at each other gets boring, so you decide to throw them at other things, usually houses, okay? 
So we decided, let's go ahead and start chucking snowballs at this random house, and let's see who can hit the, uh, the window first, and this will be great. We're, we're really honing it in, like really pitching those fastballs right down the middle, piff, 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 just nailing this window, right, over and over and over again, a bunch of fourth graders. Um, all of a sudden, the lights turn on, because it's dark outside, lights turn on, and this single elderly woman walks into view and picks up the phone, calling the police on us. Um, and guys, the terror of the Lord came upon us. It was clear. We are atrocious human beings. How dare we harass this lovely old woman? Even fourth graders know we are naughty. Like something's just really wrong here. So we all get back to Kevin's, Kevin Bannis' basement, do the safe thing like playing video games, and we all look at each other, and we're going to say, blood pact right now. We will not ever speak of this again. Because you know. We're dead if any of our parents find out about this. So me and my brother Blake, he's a year and a half younger than me, we trudge home, we get back, and guys, just the, the guilt, the desert, I mean, it was heavy, it was thick. And we get in, and Mama Norris, okay, she can sniff it. Something's afloat. Blake is sweating bullets as Kathy's staring him down. And I'm staring him down, and I'm saying, I'll kill you if you open your mouth. <laughs> And I think it probably took 30 seconds, and Blake vomits the truth out. Ah, this is what we did, this is just the worst. And the wrath of Kathy came out, and we ended up having to go to this poor woman's house and repent. She was very gracious. But this is what, well, bring it back. This is essentially what I want us all to all understand. When human sin is confronted by righteousness, specifically the righteousness of Christ, it's condemnation is self-evident. Its condemnation is self-evident. In that moment, we knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, we crossed a line. And the Holy Spirit does that, working in the hearts of people. There's a line that's been crossed. And condemnation is so deserved. That prosecutor just proving it over and over and over and over again. Where are you this morning? As you think about sin, as you think about the standard of righteousness, the bar that has been set, which is Jesus saying, be holy as I am holy. Where, do you where are you sitting right now as we think of judgment and what we deserve from a holy God? Here's what's kind of wild is, if you remember, the, the title of this point was that the Spirit's conviction brings comfort. So how can that deep conviction Bring forth that. In Acts chapter 2, verse 37, Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, preaches a sermon revealing to all who were present the sin that they committed, the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ dying an innocent death, and the judgment that they therefore deserved. And the response from all those in hearing of that sermon was, brothers, what shall we do? Quick side note, I want you all to know this. Um, if Peter would have preached that sermon the day before, no one would have responded. Why? Because the Holy Spirit hadn't filled him yet. He could have preached that exact same structure, that exact same homiletical brilliance, and not a soul would have been saved. 
because it's the Holy Spirit of God that does the work. And the Holy Spirit of God does the work in this way. He does two specific things. He makes us aware of the sin we deserve and the or the sin we have, and therefore the judgment we deserve, and, and make us fully aware of the righteousness of Christ. Back to the high jump analogy. The standard of the bar is set, and the Holy Spirit opens our eyes, helps us understand there's no chance that I could ever, in a million years, reach that height of that bar. I never can. I'm way down by my sin. There's no way that I could earn my way, work my way, get my way up to reach that standard. And the bad news, the Holy Spirit reveals to us, the bad news is really bad. It really is. But then he does this. He shows us that the good news is really, really good. Because what Jesus does is he grabs a hold of us and he jumps over that bar himself with us in his hands. That's his grace that's available to you and me when we say, I cannot get up there myself. Lord Jesus, I need your help. And he takes your doggone worthless self that can't do anything right and says, I will make you clean. I will make you pure. I will cover you with my blood. I'll take the judgment you deserve. And I will carry you over that mark and you will be righteousness before the holy God. It's good, good news. And that's why the Holy Spirit's conviction brings you comfort. Because when you find that conviction, for the first time, what that means is you repent of your sin and receive the grace of Christ. And you experience eternal comfort forevermore. Because the judge becomes your father. And Jesus becomes your elder brother. And the Holy Spirit becomes your counselor. And comfort is available to you, always. And for those of us who do know Christ, who are Christians, while an unbeliever would experience sanctification through that, salvation through that conviction, we experience sanctification through that conviction. We experience the discipline of that conviction. And Hebrews tells us that's the sign that we're loved by our Father. Because the Father disciplines the one he loves. That's a sign of the Holy Spirit working in you if you're experiencing his conviction. Amen. And it brings you comfort. that He's not done with you yet. He's still working on you. He's turning you more and more into the likeness of the Son as you repent again and as you receive his grace and he renews you again with his comfort through his Spirit. So the Spirit's conviction brings you Comfort. And then lastly, the Spirit's revelation brings us comfort. So the Spirit reveals the truth about Christ. And we see it laid out in chapter 16, verse 13. The Spirit will guide you into all truth. He speaks what he hears, Jesus says. He will declare what is to come. This is how he reveals that truth. He guides you to the truth. He speaks what he hears and he declares what is to come. He reveals, like a guide, the truth of who Jesus is. I want you to see that. This right here, the Spirit of God orchestrated the construction of these words. But he doesn't give you this like some park ranger gives you a map to go explore the woods by yourself. No, he's like a father. Like what I do with my boys when we go explore the woods together. 
I'm hovering over them, making sure that they're not tripping. I, I'm, I'm making sure they're doing okay. I'm ensuring them that no boys, there are not bears here. I don't know why Kentucky terrifies them with bears, but they're convinced. Uh, you're gonna be okay. You're not gonna get lost. I'm gonna walk with you. The Holy Spirit does that. When we are pursuing Jesus, he guides us into all truth. He guides us as he reveals it to us. And it brings us comfort because it's not on us to figure this out. He is helping us see it. He's guiding us through all of it. And he speaks, Jesus speaks what he hears. The Spirit speaks what he hears, rather. Pastor Jamal last week talked about this uh, divine revelation chain, right? Whatever Jesus speaks, he hears from the Father. Whatever the Spirit speaks, he hears from Jesus. The source of all the truth that the Spirit of God reveals to you is the same source. It's the triune Godhead. Jesus pulls from it. The Father pulls from it. The Spirit pulls from it. They're, they're all united in this. This source is trustworthy. It's a trustworthy thing. We're all pulling from the same thing, the Spirit says. He isn't going rogue. It's not like chat GTP where we're confused on which source we're pulling up right now, right? We know the source. It's the triune Godhead of the universe where all truth lies. The Spirit's pulling from that. And then the Spirit declares what is to come. Here's what kind of pulls all this together. The Spirit will continue the revelatory work of Jesus. And he's speaking specifically to the disciples here right now, okay? So he's saying to the disciples, there's more to be said here. And I'm going to guide you. So during this is, theologians look at this text specifically and say, this is one of the banner texts for us understanding the apostolic authority for the New Testament authors. For them not going rogue, them not making stuff up, it's actually the Holy Spirit guiding them, declaring what is true, and what we read today are those words put down. It's guiding. He's guiding all of this, disclosing the truth about Christ. The Spirit reveals the truth to the disciples, and it's why this can be trusted. This isn't rogue. This is all connected and guided beautifully by the Holy Spirit. And all of that revelation, by the way, brings us deep comfort. Because many of us in this room today struggle with actually a lot of confusion and a lot of doubt. As we pursue Jesus and we open this Bible and we think about theological implications, as we try to figure out how do we reconcile our faith and culture? How do we, how do we engage in what's happening around us? How do, I, how do I deal with some of the confounding truths of who God is? How do I hear some things laid out in here that trouble me and confuse me and seem maybe oppressive, seem antithetical to a good God? How do you reconcile all of that? So this was uh, about four years ago. Um, my brother-in-law, whose name is Andy, so keep up, a little confusing. Uh, Andy and I are um, in his pool in his backyard uh, with our two little boys at the time. My son Lincoln was one, and his cousin, my nephew, Mac, was also one. Okay, Both these boys are playing in the pool. They're having a good old time because they're with their dads. Things are cool. Um, Andy, my brother-in-law, looks at me and he goes, hey, you want to see something crazy? And I was like, maybe, I don't know. Depends on what this means. He grabs Mac, infant, okay, little, and flips him over in the pool. No floaties. And I'm watching. My, 
nephew, my flesh and blood, eyes horrified under the water, just like completely like this. And then he slowly floats back up and he catches a breath and he floats there by himself. Okay, if the neighbors were watching this transpire, (laughs) it would be very bad news for Andy Mortensen, for he would look like an atrocious dad, a malicious dad actually at that, and saying, you're torturing your son in the pool. What is happening right now? What was transpiring, for those of you who are having your anxiety attack at this moment, Andy had just put Mac through a training to teach survival skills to an infant who had accidentally fallen into a pool. And the way to continue to remind like the infant on how to do it is you just kind of had to keep doing it and teach him. And he did it sparingly because it's really rough to see. Obviously. (laughs) As we think about this, as we think about the difficult things that we read in here, that we discuss in theology as we try to engage this. It's hard. It's confusing. There's doubt that comes in, sometimes fear. But here's where the Holy Spirit brings us comfort. Is that just like I could look at what my brother-in-law was doing and saying, I know the character of this man. I know the instructions and the content by which what he is doing has a lot of data backed up to it. It's really good. While I don't understand all that what's happening right now, I can know this. This is actually for the good of my nephew. As we're reading this, and as things get difficult, I want you to remember that while you can, we deal and we struggle and we wrestle and we try to figure things out, have this comfort. The character of your God is trustworthy. The content that he's pulling from is true and good and for our flourishing, and for our beauty. And even though we don't fully understand how it all works, here's what we know and where we can find comfort from. He's not malicious. He's not intentionally trying to confuse us in any way. It's not damaging us. It's for our good and for our flourishing. And it brings us deep comfort, even as we wrestle, even as we fear. There's comfort available to us. So, How do we apply this this week as we conclude? Well, I think first, we all need to take some time this week, quiet before the Lord, and probably ask some questions. I think the first question is, how are we struggling with fear right now? What are you fearing? Is it abandonment? Is it guilt? Is it confusion about something in here or something about the church? Where's your fear? What are you fearing? And then how are you trying to absolve that fear? Are you shifting more towards indulgence? I want to numb this. I want to kind of distract myself from this. I want to overwork to figure this out. Or are you leaning more towards isolation? I want to withdraw. I want to hide. I want to ignore. Identifying those two things The invitation for us from John chapter 16 is let's be a people that when we experience fear, rather than choosing isolation or indulgence, we choose embrace from the Holy Spirit. We embrace the Holy Spirit's comfort for us 
Because any comfort we find from indulgence and isolation is so temporary, it's probably damaging us, but rather we can find an embrace from the Holy Spirit where this lasting, continuous, constant comfort, grace upon grace upon grace, reminded who we are, that we're adopted sons and daughters, we're not orphans, as Pastor Jamal talked about. We do not need to fear being rejected because Jesus' blood has guaranteed that we've been adopted. And the Spirit reminds you of that through His Word, through times of prayer and silence, just basking in the truth that you're loved, that the Spirit's affirmation of Jesus, that you are His beloved son or daughter, and in Him, you're well-pleased, is true of you too. In community, being reminded of those truths by brothers and sisters who are in it. That's us embracing the comfort that the Spirit offers us. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Jesus, we love you and thank you for the powerful, all-surpassing peace that surpasses all understanding that's available to us through your Spirit, reminding us that we're not alone, reminding us that we've been forgiven, that grace is available to us every moment of every day. And that you're trustworthy and your words are true. That through your spirit's arrival, through your spirit's conviction, through your spirit's revelation, comfort that we truly long for is available to us. Lord, would we believe that this week and act on that truth this week? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So the, this text concluded with verse 15 and Jesus saying that the Spirit glorifies me as he declares these truths to you. I want you to know this incredible truth that the Holy Spirit is more committed to your spiritual growth than you are. That he is committed to glorifying Christ. And we are, Christ is glorified as we grow more and more and more into the likeness of him. But it's not on you and me to do that. It's on the Spirit's work to do that within us. He provides you nourishment as we do that together. And one of the powerful images of that being true is communion. That you're not alone. That he's with you. That he's broken his body for you and shed his blood for you. That's the comfort you're looking for. So we're gonna come and we're gonna take this. And Jesus said, this is my body, which is broken for you. As you eat it, would you do so in remembrance of me? And he also took the cup and said, this is my blood of the new covenant shed for you. And as we drink this, we're declaring the gospel to us. As we literally like taste these elements, it's a physical, tangible, embodied reminder that the Spirit of God is with us, that Jesus' sacrifice for you and then the salvation that he's achieved for you is true. It really is. So as we come, would we feast in that beautiful comfort? If you uh, desire the cups, they're right here for any of those with gluten allergen or other reasons. Um, the wine is marked by twine, so whatever your conscience permits. But let's feast together knowing that the comfort is available to us through the Holy Spirit. And this is a tangible reminder of that beautiful truth. Let's do that together. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. 
At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.